Hello again. This is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the September podcast. This month we publish two editorials, one original research paper, a case report, a teaching case, and the executive summary of the new United States Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guideline on Treating Tobacco Use and Dependence. We also publish a letter and several book reviews. This month we feature six reviews from the New Horizons Symposium, all of which deal with the subject of pulmonary rehabilitation. Sarah, tell us more about this month's papers. A comparison of healthcare costs in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease using lightweight portable oxygen systems versus traditional compressed oxygen systems is presented by Maple et al. from the Lovelace Clinic Foundation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The objective of this study was to compare the overall healthcare costs of patients with COPD who used lightweight portable oxygen systems to those who used e-cylinder systems. All the patients who used either a lightweight portable oxygen system, an e-cylinder system, or an e-cylinder system followed by a lightweight portable oxygen system for at least 12 months during the study period of January 1, 1999 through December 30, 2004, were identified from the administrative database of a regional managed care system. All direct medical utilization and costs were captured for at least the first 12 months that supplemental oxygen was dispensed. Other clinical factors that affect costs, including age, sex, ethnicity, and comorbidities were examined and adjusted for. Of the 2,725 patients who met the inclusion criteria, 203 used only a lightweight portable oxygen system. 2,268 used only an e-cylinder system, and 254 switched from an e-cylinder system to a lightweight portable oxygen system. Among the patients who used only the lightweight portable oxygen system, the median total medical costs in the first year were lower than those who used an e-cylinder system, $6,515 per first year, versus $9,503 per year, but this did not reach statistical significance. The cost difference remained non-significant after adjustment for clinical factors. Among the patients who switched from one system to the other in the first year, mean monthly healthcare costs while using the lightweight portable oxygen system were not significantly different than when using the e-cylinder system. The authors concluded that the type of oxygen system used did not significantly affect overall cost of care in patients with COPD on long-term oxygen therapy. McIntyre from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina presents the paper, Mechanisms of Functional Loss in Patients with Chronic Lung Disease. Functional loss, often quantified as exercise limitation, is common in patients with chronic lung disease. The factors involved are multiple, and many may be present together in a given patient. 
ventilatory factors involve an imbalance in load to capacity relationships. Specifically, breathing loads from abnormal respiratory system mechanics and or excessive ventilatory demand cannot be handled by respiratory muscles that are dysfunctional or malpositioned. Gas exchange factors involve impaired ventilation-perfusion relationships that lead to hypoxemia, impaired oxygen delivery, and pulmonary hypertension. Cardiovascular factors involve coexisting intrinsic heart disease, right ventricular overload from pulmonary vascular abnormalities, and simple deconditioning. Both respiratory and limb skeletal muscle factors involve direct inflammatory mediator effects on muscle function, malnutrition, blood gas abnormalities, compromised oxygen delivery from right heart dysfunction, electrolyte imbalances, drugs, and comorbid states. Other less well understood factors include excessive dyspnea, impaired motivation, orthopedic issues, and psychiatric issues. A Brief History of Pulmonary Rehabilitation is presented by Casa Burry from the Rehabilitation Clinical Trials Center in Los Angeles, California. Pulmonary rehabilitation is widely accepted as effective therapy for patients with COPD. This paper presents a brief and somewhat subjective history of pulmonary rehabilitation and stresses the development of the exercise component. Until the middle of the 20th century, patients with COPD were advised to avoid the dyspnea that activity brings. Barak can be credited with suggesting that patients with COPD should strive to be more active. In the 1960s, Petty created the multidisciplinary team that was found to be effective in delivering pulmonary rehabilitation. In the 1980s, doubts surfaced as to the ability of rehabilitative exercise to improve muscle function in COPD, but in the 1990s, Studies showed that well-designed exercise programs caused beneficial physiologic adaptations. The current decade has yielded studies that exploited those insights to design interventions that boost the effectiveness of rehabilitative exercise. Zoolic from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford, Connecticut presents the paper the roles of bronchodilators, supplemental oxygen, and ventilatory assistance in the pulmonary rehabilitation of patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. In patients with COPD, pulmonary rehabilitation significantly improves dyspnea, exercise capacity, quality of life, and health resource utilization. These benefits result from a combination of education, especially in the promotion of collaborative self-management strategies and physical activity, exercise training, and psychosocial support. Exercise training increases exercise capacity and reduces dyspnea. Positive outcomes from exercise training may be enhanced by three interventions that permit the patient to exercise train at a higher intensity, bronchodilators, supplemental oxygen even for the non-hypoxemic patient, and non-invasive ventilatory support. 
The next paper is by Rochester from the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Its title is Pulmonary Rehabilitation for Patients Who Undergo Lung Volume Reduction Surgery or Lung Transplantation. Patients preparing for or recovering from lung volume reduction surgery or lung transplantation represent a selected group of patients with advanced chronic respiratory disease. Such patients typically have severe ventilatory limitation and disability and are at high risk for preoperative and postoperative complications. Pulmonary rehabilitation is an ideal setting in which to address the patient's questions and knowledge deficits regarding his or her disease and its treatment, ensure that the patient understands the nature, potential benefits, risks, and expected outcomes of the surgery relative to medical therapies, and prepare physically and emotionally for the surgery. Pulmonary rehabilitation also may improve survival and or outcomes of lung volume reduction surgery and transplantation, at least in part by stabilizing and improving the patient's exercise tolerance and muscle function. Further work is needed to determine whether pulmonary rehabilitation can augment the benefits and outcomes of lung volume reduction surgery or lung transplantation, reduce postoperative complications, or improve patient survival to or following the surgery. Paper, Pulmonary Rehabilitation Summary of an Evidence-Based Guideline, is presented by Reese from the University of California in San Diego. Pulmonary rehabilitation has emerged as a standard of care for patients with chronic lung disease based on a growing body of scientific evidence. Over recent decades, several professional organizations have championed pulmonary rehabilitation and developed comprehensive statements, practice guidelines, and evidence-based guidelines. Documenting the scientific evidence underlying clinical practice has been important in overcoming skepticism and convincing health professionals, healthcare institutions, third-party payers, and regulatory agencies to support pulmonary rehabilitation programs. The literature on pulmonary rehabilitation has increased substantially and provided justification for including pulmonary rehabilitation in practice guidelines for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and other chronic lung diseases. Therefore, the American College of Chest Physicians and the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehabilitation decided to update their 1997 guidelines with a systematic, evidence-based review of the literature since the previous review. The panel updated prior topics and recommendations and reviewed new topics. Recommendations were given for outcomes of comprehensive pulmonary rehabilitation programs, including lower extremity exercise training, dyspnea, health-related quality of life, health care utilization, survival, psychosocial outcomes, and long-term benefits. Additional topics include the duration of pulmonary rehabilitation, post-rehabilitation maintenance strategies, intensity of aerobic exercise training, strength training, anabolic drugs, upper extremity training, inspiratory muscle training, education, 
psychological and behavioral components, oxygen supplementation, non-invasive ventilation, nutrition supplementation, rehabilitation for patients with disorders other than chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and future pulmonary rehabilitation research. These guidelines provide an excellent summary of the recent literature and further strengthen the scientific basis of pulmonary rehabilitation. Emory et al. from The Ohio State University in Columbus present Neuropsychiatric Function in Chronic Lung Disease, the Role of Pulmonary Rehabilitation. Chronic lung disease is associated with increased psychological distress, especially anxiety and depression, and neuropsychological impairments primarily in flexible problem-solving and information sequencing, which decrease quality of life, disease management, and survival. This review summarizes current data regarding the prevalence of neuropsychiatric disorders, the assessment tools commonly used to measure and monitor neuropsychiatric symptoms, the effect of pulmonary rehabilitation on neuropsychiatric symptoms, the mechanism by which exercise rehabilitation may influence neuropsychiatric functioning, and the clinical implications of the data. A case of rapidly progressive necrotizing pneumonia caused by community-acquired methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus is presented by Dixon et al. from the Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. The authors present a case of a patient with a necrotizing multilobar pneumonia caused by community-acquired methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, commonly referred to as MRSA. The patient presented with shortness of breath and a productive cough of three days' duration. On arrival to the emergency department, she was intubated for increased work of breathing and given vasopressors for hypotension refractory to fluid resuscitation. Blood cultures taken at admission, sputum cultures from the patient's endotracheal tube, and bronchoalveolar lavage cultures all grew Staphylococcus aureus resistant to penicillinase-resistant penicillins. Over the following days, the patient's respiratory function deteriorated as she grew progressively hypoxemic and hypercarbic despite aggressive mechanical ventilation and intravenous antibiotics. On day four of her hospitalization, a computed tomogram revealed extensive pulmonary necrosis consistent with necrotizing pneumonia. The patient's family elected to withdraw support, and the patient rapidly died following cessation of mechanical ventilation. Three therapies that have been shown to be beneficial in patients with COPD are oxygen therapy, pulmonary rehabilitation, and smoking cessation. Each of these is addressed in this issue of respiratory care. For patients with COPD and chronic hypoxemia, supplemental oxygen is one of the only interventions that reduce mortality. This was clearly established by randomized controlled trials reported more than 25 years ago. Lightweight portable oxygen systems are commonly preferred by patients over compressed oxygen systems that use e-cylinders. 
However, cost is often perceived as a barrier to the prescription of lightweight portable oxygen systems. In their study, Maple et al. found that the type of oxygen system used did not significantly affect overall cost of care in patients with COPD on long-term oxygen therapy. Although the health care plan did not see increased costs, Patrick Dunn, in an accompanying editorial, questions whether the home care providers may have seen increased costs. In the same editorial, Dunn addresses important issues related to deliverableness technology that does not require the home care provider to make home deliveries of oxygen. He also appropriately addresses the misconception that a setting on a pulse dose device is the same as a continuous flow device on the same numerical setting. As Dunn appropriately warns, assurance must be provided to protect from arterial desaturation regardless of the device. The New Horizons Symposium is presented each year at the AARC Annual Congress. Typically, the symposium includes six to eight presentations related to aspects of a specific respiratory care topic, and the presenters are invited to publish a paper in respiratory care related to their symposium presentation. The 2007 New Horizons Symposium was on the topic of pulmonary rehabilitation and was chaired by Neil McIntyre. The presenters are all noted authorities on pulmonary rehabilitation. We are pleased to publish the related papers in this issue. This collection of papers is a state-of-the-art review of the expanding pulmonary rehabilitation evidence base. Specific papers address the history of pulmonary rehabilitation, the pathophysiologic mechanisms of functional loss in patients with chronic lung disease, the roles of therapies such as oxygen, bronchodilators, and ventilatory assistance in pulmonary rehabilitation, the role of pulmonary rehabilitation in patients who receive lung volume reduction surgery or lung transplantation, and the role of pulmonary rehabilitation on neuropsychiatric function. There is also a paper that reviews the recent evidence-based guideline for pulmonary rehabilitation. The case by Dixon et al. reports a rapidly progressive necrotizing pneumonia caused by community-acquired MRSA. This has been reported in increasing frequency and respiratory care providers should recognize that necrotizing pneumonia caused by community-acquired MRSA can present without fever or hemoptysis and can be rapidly progressive and fatal. In this month's teaching case, Vahed et al. report a case of lymphomatoid granulomatosis presenting as multiple pulmonary nodules. The United States Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guideline on Treating Tobacco Use and Dependence was recently published and we are pleased to provide the executive summary in this issue of the journal. Included in this executive summary are the 10 key recommendations of the updated guidelines. As Woe and Lorish point out in an accompanying editorial, if each of us becomes familiar with the recommendations of this clinical practice guideline and convincingly advise our patients to quit smoking 
more of our patients would quit smoking and avoid the morbidity and premature death that results from continuing to smoke. Finally, we publish a letter and several book reviews. There should be something of interest for all respiratory care providers in this month's issue. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.